Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on Sex, Love, and Addiction. I don't know which podcast this is because we've been doing some really good ones lately. And this is a special one for me because I am friends with this gentleman and I admire his work. And even in my own struggles, uh, I read some of his books back in the day and thought, wow, this guy really gets it. And so I just want to introduce you folks to Terry Real. Terry founded the Relational Life Institute, which offers workshops for couples, individuals, and parents around the country along with professional training program for clinicians wanting to learn the RLT or relational life therapy method. A family therapist and teacher for more than 25 years, Terry's the best-selling author of I Don't Want to Talk About It, Overcoming the Secret Legacy of Male Depression, and The Straight Talking How Can I Get Through to You, Reconnecting Men and Women, and most recently, The New Rules of Marriage, What You Need to Know to Make Love Work. I can't think of a better guest for us. Welcome, Terry. Well, thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I appreciate our friendship and I appreciate the work that you do. And thank you for taking the time today. You chose the topic. Um, You said, hey, why don't we talk about healing betrayal? And I can't think of a better one. So tell me what you're thinking, why you chose it, what's on your mind related to that today? Well, um, I've chosen, I think, because a a betrayal case just walked out of my door Hmm. five minutes before I jumped on this podcast. So that's... uh, that, that that's not all that uh, complicated. And when we're talking about betrayal, you mean infidelity, basically, or relationship betrayal, a profound relationship betrayal in an intimate relationship. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, an intimate relationship. Yes, and and I'm talking about infidelity. There are other ways to betray somebody in an intimate relationship, but infidelity pretty much takes the cake. Uh huh. I would I'd agree with that. <laughs> and only if your partner doesn't know about it, I would say it takes the cake. Um, cause it's about the lying and the cheating and not about the sex as I often say, but yeah, in order for it to be infidelity. And of course, one of the reasons why there's so little research is nobody can agree on what the damn thing is. So in order for it to count as infidelity, there, there needs to be uh, two elements. Uh, there needs to be a transgression. Somebody has to break the rules and there needs to be deceit. You can have infidelity in an open marriage, and uh, people are surprised that it so often does occur. People love to transgress. So, you know, if the rules are everybody but nobody in a 50-mile radius or everybody but my cousin Elaine uh, or everybody but one of the kids' teachers, guess what happens? 
but in order for it to count as infidelity, it has to be deceitful and it has to be a violation of contract. And trust. Yes, of course. By, by definition, trust. Mm-hmm. So tell me more about couples who find themselves in that situation, because I think that's a painful thing you and I deal with in our offices every day. I think that there's infidelity for the general population. And I think that there's some specifics to dealing with coming back from sex addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole, you you know this better than I do, the whole thing with uh, setting up a disclosure and an impact and all that. It seems to me, Terry, that sometimes couples struggle more when the addict is the betrayer because, you know, in a healthy relationship, if you betray me sexually or romantically and I, and I am hurt and angry, I'm going to be full throttle hurt and angry. But if you're an addict, if, if therapist or somebody or you tell me, hey, you, it's not just that he cheated, he's got a problem, then I think partners can struggle with, well, if it was cancer, I'd feel badly for him, but because it's cheating and addiction, I, I'm caught up in this confusion about whether to feel sorry for him and worry about him or be furious. Yeah, I, I don't know, Rob. I The people that I see, the partners of sex addicts, generally don't have a whole lot of difficulty being furious. <laughs> it's, it's true. Yeah, I, I don't think that's a big conflict. I think the conflict is more when the infidelity is chronic, pervasive, and part of an addiction, it's a bigger wallop, and it's a lot harder to come back to trust. Look, the per- the heart partner in an infidelity has two questions. How could you do this? Like, literally, how could, what were you thinking? Like, right, like, right. How could you be in her bed and then come back here and play with the kids? Like, right. how did you do that? So the first question is like, how how could you do that? And the second question, of course, is how do I know you're not going to do it to me again? Mm-hmm. And that second question becomes a lot more difficult if you're dealing with an addiction, because by definition, you're talking about something that is beyond the individual's control. And it may happen again. And it may it's more likely that it might happen again. So, but generally speaking, let me, I have more experience in dealing with general population infidelity. So let me start there at least. Good. Then we can talk about it. There are three phases uh, generally when coming back from an infidelity. I used to have two. And then Esther Perel made me stick in a second one by osmosis. The first one is the acute phase. And this is primarily focused on the hurt partner. The hurt partner is, I believe, in an acute state of trauma. Mm-hmm. Infidelity is truly traumatic, I believe, in the sense that trauma sweeps away the uh, underlying beliefs that you don't think about. Like an earthquake, I was in an earthquake once, and the earth was like all of a sudden I was like on the uh, I was on the sea. That's not supposed to happen. The earth's supposed to stay under my feet, unmoving. And you're supposed to be a committed, faithful, loving partner. But when the earth moves and you're not, wow. Right. And people in her uh, situations react like trauma. They, mm-hmm. uh, they're obsessive. They lose weight. They can't eat. They can't sleep. They're vigilant. Yeah. So first start with those acute symptoms. Are you sleeping? Are you eating? Do you need some uh, uh, some short-term medication. Do you need EMDR? Yes. So, so in my language, that would mean the partners who have been betrayed are kind of like someone who's been hit by a truck and they're in a crisis and they need to figure out how to get through their day. They're just dealing with the here and now and the immediate struggles they're in. 
That's exactly right. And the fury is great. And there are some very predictable things. There's fury at the partner. There's often feeling that the partner is just a bad person. The, the framework is moral. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a shit. That's why you did it. You're, you're a selfish right. shit or, or you're weak. There isn't very much hope. There's a lot of self-righteous indignation, which under normal circumstances, one wouldn't want to tolerate in a therapist's office. But here you give a little more leeway as long as it's not downright abusive. Uh, The person goes kind of nuts. There's a lot of comparison. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of uh, her legs are longer than mine. And all that's very predictable. The the volatility uh, within one's own mood, all of this needs to be described to the hurt partner, normalized and predicted. So that's the hurt partner. The account, the, the, um, the involved partner in that acute phase has to come clean. Mm-hmm. And by come clean, I don't necessarily mean that they have to disclose. We can talk about, there, you know, 100 therapists have 200 opinions about whether it's important to disclose a one-night stand from 25 years ago or not. It varies from couple to couple and situation to situation, whether you would or wouldn't do that. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, this is the sort of thing that you don't necessarily always get right. I mean, I had a couple come in. And the guy admitted literally to a one-night stand in, in two days after they came back from his honeymoon 34 years ago. And the wife went into acute trauma, feeling that 34 years had been founded on a lie. And it took her two years to come back from that. Now, I'll tell you, if somebody told me that, I would say, oh, come on. Give it a give it a month and move on, but that's what it took for her. It, it can be very traumatic, and what the hurt partner needs, you know, it's funny you say they've been hit by a truck. They need to know the make and model of the truck. They need to put reality back together again. So there's a lot of well, when you said you were in Chicago, you were really with him in New York, right? Partners are so blindsided so much of the time. And what they're dealing with is, is in me in this crisis stage is that is, is I don't know where that trick came from. I don't, I wasn't expecting it. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be another one. Can I step out in the street again? I mean, all of that is very immediate and very current for them. Yeah. You know, I make all the people who've been through uh, infidelity watch the great Beyonce's uh, Lemonade uh, which is about her uh, betrayal by by JC, and it opens up with Beyonce in full regalia, uh, throwing open the larger than life doors of an old church, and water comes flooding out of the church like a giant, you know, ocean. And uh, those are her feelings; it's just flood of feelings. And also to note. In her hand is a baseball bat. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a bit of a Tiger Woods spouse in all of us. Yeah, there is. There is. And you normalize whatever the person's feeling. You don't get to be abusive. You don't get to rage. Right. Uh, You do get to feel what you feel. Now, what the um, involved partner needs to do is step up. Mm -hmm. Obviously, end uh, whatever the involvements are. All of it, not just I'm not going to see them again, but also the phone calls, the blogs, the tweets, the what it has to end. Everything. The only exception is if somebody's stuck with somebody in a business circumstance and they literally would have to quit their job. Yeah, those those you have to use a little finesse. But generally speaking, there's no contact. There can be a goodbye letter that is shared with the hurt partner. 
That's up to the herd partner. There is a lot of, I differ from uh, Esther Perel in this one. There's a lot, I, I agree with what I call reassuring behaviors. You know, if you cheated on the road, you want to give your partner your the phone number of the hotel and snap a picture of your room. So they can track you if they want, wherever you go. Because if they want to know where you are and you want to regain trust, that's what needs to be done. It's a process of regaining trust because you lie. Right. And that's also couple by couple. I know that it's, uh, with sex addiction, transparency is part of the sex addict's recovery. Mm-hmm. So it's really total transparency. With infidelity, it's more case by case. Mm-hmm. And I don't want people bushwhacking people. So my usual is, yes, you get his password. Yes, you get to go through the emails. Once every 10 days, the two of you sit down together and you go through the email. Uh, but you don't get to bushwhack them like three o'clock in the morning. I've seen that. I've actually seen men wake up with erections and their wife will, or spouse male will start hitting them because clearly you were thinking about her or him or you wouldn't have had erection in your sleep. And so I will wake you up to being slapped. So I've experienced that kind of what you would call abuse from partners. And they're just blindly furious. I would. And, you know, there are therapists and 12-step sponsors who will encourage people to express them. You know, you've got to find your voice, dear. It was your lack of voice that led to the affair to begin. Forget it. No. I don't think that. And I think there's an agreement that you and I can have that there's nothing a spouse can do to make me have an affair. I, they can deprive me of sex. They can gain 50 pounds. They can ignore me and I can get a divorce. I can go to a, a marriage counselor. I can pick up a hobby. There's a lot of things I can do with unhappiness in a marriage other than say, well, I'm just going to have an affair. That's the decision of the person who wants to have the affair. Absolutely. And that's what I mean by accountability. I did it, not I did it, but not I did it, but you, not just I did it. I take responsibility. And so you talked about stages. You talked about a kind of a crisis and shock stage. The second stage is um, an interesting one that I think is hairier for sex addicts than it is for the general population. And that's the stage of trying to understand what the infidelity meant to the person who was cheating. You have to understand it. Uh, That doesn't mean you condone it. It doesn't mean you excuse it. But like the way Esther puts it, and I follow her on this, is uh, what it did to you and what it meant to me. Mm -hmm. And they're often different. I don't ask somebody, for example, to out and out apologize for the affair Mm -hmm. or say they're sorry for the affair. That could be a lie. They may not be sorry. The affair might have been a wonderful experience for them. I'm sorry for the damage that it did mm-hmm. to you and the family. Well, that's also empathy. Right. And in terms of explanation, I will say this. I generally tend to look at two frameworks. I look at uh, either the difficulty in the relationship. Hey, this was a dead relationship, Rob. I'm sorry. I don't condone what your husband did, but you know what? It's uh, somebody had to shake this thing up. So Mm -hmm. there we are. You you guys were on death's door anyway. So I look at at the affair as a uh, a throwing open windows in a dead system or Mm -hmm. uh, looking for comfort in an abusive system or something like that. So I look at the relational difficulties. And then I also look at narcissism because you don't ask somebody why they have an affair. You ask them why they don't have an affair. Can you say, wait, 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 wait. Uh, you don't ask someone why they had an affair. You ask them why they don't have an affair. Can you explain that? 
Why, why would why wouldn't you have an affair? Well, it's flattering, it's exciting, it sexually feels great. So, okay, it, it doesn't take Sigmund Freud to figure out why somebody would cheat. Now you have to ask, why wouldn't they? Mm. Now, you know, it's one day at a time. I don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow. But as far as today is concerned, I'm not going to be unfaithful to my wife because I don't want to hurt her. I don't want to look my kids in the eye and explain why daddy was screwing around on mommy. I don't want to ruin my reputation. I don't want to ruin my sense of integrity. And I don't want to be disrespectful to women particularly either. And I think Stan Patkin said to me today something like, I want to be a good person in my relationship. I want to be whole. Right. You know, I love in, in SA and SAA when they talk about integrity. I love the way sex addiction talks about integrity. It's almost like it's a geography. Like I, I was in integrity for two weeks and then I got out of integrity when I did this. And I talked to my sponsor and made amends to my wife and got back in integrity again. Integrity feels better than the lack of integrity. Wholeness and connection feels better than the lack of wholeness and connection. So we look at the we look at whatever narcissistic character traits there might have been in the unfaithful one that overrode the no for them. And then the third phase is recommitment and transformation. Because I want to fix whatever there was that were the relational difficulties that might have been the backdrop. And I want to fix, I want to transform the character of either the co co-involved hurt partner or uh, the straightforwardly involved involved partner. I want to look at changing uh, whatever accommodation patterns there may have been in the hurt partner uh, or abusive patterns there may have been in the hurt partner. And um, one of the things I say to hurt partners that's interesting is whatever you were doing before the infidelity, whatever your relational stance might have been that might have been problematic, now... You get to do that problematic stance with a vengeance because you've been cheated on. So if you withdrew, you get to withdraw more. If you are angry, you get to be a real avenging angel now, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The old stance that got you into trouble is now reinforced. And in the face of the temptation to escalate all that old defensive structure, you have to let it go and do a 180. This is the hurt partner. Hey there, I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. So I want to I want to ask a question here because a lot of partners say to me and and in a reasonable amount of time like six months or you know how do how do I forgive how do I begin to forgive how can I and I know pretty clearly that encouraging forgiveness before somebody's really ready for it is usually not productive because they either blame themselves for not having let go of it or they just continue or they say they've forgiven but then they're acting out all over the place so how do you know when someone is ready to say okay. I'm going to do a 180 on all my anger, my defenses, my trauma reactions, my hurt. And I'm going to say, I'm here and I see you and I'm willing to give this a try. H how does someone make that turn? 
Well, first of all, just a little a little detail. I don't like the word forgiveness, and I don't use the word forgiveness. Okay. For exactly the reason you said, you know, the idea, and it's primarily a religious idea, but the idea that hmm. the hurt person has to forgive the offending person in order for the hurt person to heal, I think lays a real trip on the hurt person. Mm, well, on both of them, because then I've got to get you to forgive me. I think the person who did a bad thing did a bad thing, and they can feel like they did a bad thing until the day they die. Right. And and I will say to you, that Terry, that, uh, and again, I'm having back-to-back podcast conversations with ex- experts like yourself. You know, Dr. Tatkin was saying to me today, you know, trust isn't ever restored. I mean, that, that doesn't happen. She or he will never look at you again and think of you in the same way. That's gone forever. Well, I speak about the difference between naive trust and mature trust. Tell me about that. Look, my model of relationships comes from uh, Ed Tronick, the Harvard uh, infant observational researcher. And what Ed Tronick found out is that when you really look at mothers and infants, it's an endless dance of harmony, disharmony, and repair. Closeness, disruption, and return to closeness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the rhythm of all relationships. The harmony phase, uh, the first phase, I speak of as love without knowledge. It's the innocent phase. Then you pass through disillusionment. Disillusionment is when you look at your partner and you go, oh my God, I can't believe it. What was I thinking? And I call that um, knowledge without love. You see your partner really clearly, but you're not in a good mood. And then the third phase, thank goodness, is mature love experience love and you know your partner can betray you you know about the wounds that are inflicted in this relationship you know about your partner's warts and moles and you choose to love them anyway it's an informed choice to stay with you i know all of it the good the bad the ugly and i'm choosing to stay that's right so a lot of hurt partners will idealize the pre-crisis You know, it was Eden. It was perfect. Right. And I like to tell them the story of um, the novelist, the American novelist Henry James, arguably his greatest book. uh, It's called The Golden Bowl. And uh, if you'll indulge me, I'll tell you quickly the story. Uh, It's a a young, rich uh, American woman, newly married, sitting in a garden in her uh, villa in France, and her brilliant connoisseur uh, father comes to visit and says he's invited some Europeans in for a few weeks. This is Henry James' great theme, the sort of amoral, glittery Europeans and the stalwart kind of stodgy Americans. Anyway, the Europeans come and pretend that one of the European women immediately proceeds to have an affair with her husband. Mm. And it's all, it's Henry James, so it's all at six removes from whatever's happening. But um, she sort of collapses for two or 300 pages and then comes out. And there's this one wonderful scene where the the affair partner is um, in her home warming her foot by the fire. And the wife comes and plants herself beside this person she'd been so ashamed of in the presence of and sticks her foot in the fire next to her. And you know from that one scene that she's going to fight back. And she does. And she kicks him out and she wins her husband back and it's all good. And she winds up back in the garden with her father. And she says, she tells him all that happened. And he says, yeah, well. And she says, but you knew something like this was going to happen. Why did you bring these people into my life? Mm. And the father looks at her and says, 
you've always been good. I think now you're great. Meaning? She has moved from innocence to maturity, experience, clear-sightedness, and power. So no, you don't get back naive trust, but you get back something else. Do you think that the ability to heal infidelity is in any way related to how long a couple has been together? No. I've seen infidelity blow apart somebody after 40 years. I've seen it blow apart somebody after two weeks. It's how it lands on the person and how they handle it. The unfaithful one needs to get it, needs to really move into some empathy and remorse. And the very forces of narcissism that may have pushed the person toward the affair to begin with will mitigate against them being able to be patient and empathic. And you know, one of the things I say, Rob, is that there's a built-in asymmetry. The unfaithful partner or the involved partner wants to get out of it as quickly as possible. Let's move on. The hurt partner can't move on. They want to get into it. Right. And one of the things I do is I normalize that asymmetry. Anybody in your position will be saying the same thing. But you know what, buddy? Your, your hurt partner wins. And it's part of your transformation to become the empathic, patient, giving husband or wife that you should have been all along. I, I do want to say that I wrote a book about this called Out of the Doghouse, a step-by-step relationship saving guide for men caught cheating. And I wrote the book specifically because many men that I work with just don't, you know, Dr. or I want to call you Dr. Real because I admire you. Terry, we are problem solvers as men. You know, we want to fix things. If you come in and tell me the dishwasher is not working and you can't believe and you're all, all upset rather than listening to what you're saying, I'm probably just going to go try to fix the dishwasher because <laughs> that's kind of how men are. We're linear. We want to fix. It has always blown my mind that men have such a hard time healing infidelity with their spouses. It seems like we're fixers and we would be able to do that. And the only thing that I conclude is that men don't in general have an understanding of the degree of harm that they've caused. They don't realize how much their partner, especially if it's a woman, is going to be looking at not just you betrayed me, but you betrayed our house, our family, our church, our children, our home, everything in a much bigger way. And I'm thinking, well, all I did was go to Vegas and get a lap dance. What does that have to do with our marriage, our relationship, our family? Well, it's going to be very different for her when she comes home or when I come home and she finds out. Do you think that is a male-female kind of thing? Oh, yeah. Well, one of the things I wrote about in my book on men and boys and men. One of my favorite books that I would just recommend to anybody who wants to understand male depression. If you're, I got to say this for you, if you don't mind, because it's true, I recommend it all the time. If you're working with someone or love someone who has changed in a way that leaves them irritable and angry and narcissistic and difficult, it could be not that they become a jerk, but that they are slipping into depression. And this is something I learned from Dr. from Terry so well, is how men exhibit depression. So I just want to acknowledge that book and you for writing it. Rob, I think you should call me doctor for the rest of the podcast. We'll just go with that. Um, so, but listen, the things that you're talking about, particularly in men, make it difficult. I've got a wonderful tape that I show of a guy who cheated out of a sense of entitlement. He got a big promotion. He thought he was king of the universe and he just got himself, you know, a massage with a happy ending, but he got busted. But the same kind of entitlement and grandiosity that led him to, uh, override his scruples Mm-hmm. Uh, makes it difficult for him to be accountable, to be humble. It, like a lot of guys, the setup was I'm either perfect or I'm a big shit. 
So in order to ward off feeling like a big shit, I have to ward off you who are telling me about my imperfection. This is very common for men. Right. Because we have big egos. <laughs> in part, <laughs> I, I actually, Terry, often say that women tolerate us and are able to deal with men because they have each other. Uh, when if you not <laughs> talk to a woman who, you know, I listen to my women friends, they're saying, oh, my husband did this, my boyfriend did that, my work part, my boss did this, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, this is how you guys tolerate us. You have each other. Healthy women turn to each other for support in, in when you're struggling with men. And, and I'll give Sex in the City a, a nod for that because this was a wonderful show about women who were feminists and finding themselves, and but all they could talk about was men. And so, you know, and so it goes. Um, you, you know, I'll tell you, Rob, uh, not, not to get too far afield of infidelity, but I remember speaking the, to the great feminist psychologist, Carol Gilligan, and she said she was in refugee camps in Palestine. Okay. You're in a refuge, like you're living in a cardboard box, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said, what do you think those people are talking about? Okay, what are they talking about? Well, this one's in love with that one, and that one's leaving this one, and this one's sleeping with that one on the side. The human condition. <laughs> it's everywhere. It's the human preoccupation. I'll tell you my secret, and I'll say this uh, on, on, the, uh, on the podcast then. You know, I write for Psychology Today, and when I write a blog about anxiety or depression or porn issues or, you know, how to talk to your kids about whatever. I get about 30,000 people who read and I'm really impressed with the willingness of people to read. They're all 30,000 of them. That's amazing. But if I put the word infidelity, cheating or adultery in the title of my blog, it goes up to 100,000 reads. No kidding. No kidding. And I know that they're clicked through and fully read. So I triple my readership when I write about infidelity or cheating. And you and I both know who reads self-help books and self-help magazines. It's 95% women. And so yeah. I actually think there may be some biological imperative, and this is that women have to be a little vigilant about, is something going on that I don't know about? Because you got to protect the nest, you got to protect the hive, you got to protect the community that you've built with us, and um, so it, this does not surprise me. Tell me really quickly because we have to stop. If you and I don't want to stop, there's much more I want to talk to you about, and especially your work. But I want to hear more about my doctorate. But okay, go ahead. Well, I, I'll be glad to be on your dissertation committee, uh, Mr. Real. Um, now that I can, but let me say this to you: um, What would be just a few simple suggestions that you would give the couple who's really in the thick of it? You know, he is just sick and tired if he's the cheater about hearing about it, but he feels like a shit for having done it. She is just wants to throw him out, but still sees that glint of goodness and thinks maybe there's something salvageable here, but I'm not really sure. And especially those folks who don't have the resources for therapy and counseling, you know, at least more than a few sessions or whatever. What do you, how do you help these people hold on to their relationships, which we know are really important. Well, I really do think support is really critical. And support for, so I could go to my mother and she would say, leave the, the jerk. No, 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 no. Let me tell you what I mean by support. I make a distinction between personal empowerment and relational empowerment. Mm. Personal empowerment, and this is right up your alley with pro-dependence. Personal empowerment is, I was weak, now I'm strong, go screw yourself. I found my voice and Katie barred the door. Relational empowerment is I was weak, now I'm strong. I'm going to bring my full strength into this relationship and help you succeed with me because I love you. What do you need? Very different. So you're talking about the person who's going to have my back by saying, wow, I'm so sorry you were hurt. I'm so sorry that happened. I love you so much. But there's something here worth fighting for. And I think you should hang in there. 
it's very easy to join with the ego part, which says, you're right, you should dump him, I can't. But that's more going with the cheering crowd than looking out for that person in the long term. We live in a very individualistic, anti-relational society, and there's tons of support for righteous, self-righteous, angry victimhood. I wouldn't put up with that if I was you. And none of that is very helpful. It's all part of our patriarchal culture. I really appreciate your saying that because I think there are many partners that I work with who feel, who have been betrayed, whether as a sex addict or just a, a what I would call a more simple betrayal, and and they feel like somehow responsible or it's their fault or or that they you know they have to put up with it in some way. So I hear you. Yeah, it's neither your fault nor do you get to uh, offend from the victim position and retaliate. Everybody just has to sit as best they can with one another in the discomfort of what could prove to be with good guidance a transformational experience. Most of the couples that I work with do not go back to the same relationship they had before the affair. They go to a much better relationship than the one they had. Well, and hopefully, Terry, that's the gift that we can give them is the opportunity to guide their relationships from crisis into uh, even better functioning than they had before. Right. Post-traumatic growth. I don't want you to survive the infidelity. I want you to use it as a springboard for transformation. But not for yourself individually, for the coupleship that you share. And this is, I think, where I hear all the alignment with everyone I talk to is that, you know, obviously if there's direct abuse or violence or we don't want you to be with that person, but if there's a possibility that you can find a way to work it out with this person, if they are willing to show up and you can hang in there, there is an opportunity for a better relationship than you ever had before. And as a, as a friend of mine said to me about prodependence, since you brought it up, she said, I wonder if a lot more marriages would have stayed together if women weren't told to dump the loser and go self-actualize. That's right. And, you know, we see our strength today, not just based on our individualization, but our ability to maintain and support and grow our relationships. That's a mentally healthy person. You know, uh, to quote Carol again, Carol Gilligan, there is no relationship without voice and there's no voice without relationship. And I'll say with that, thank you for your voice. Thank you for our relationship. Many blessings to your family, who I know, and they're really good, wonderful people. And thank you for making a difference in the world, Mr. Real. Um, you make a difference <laughs> in personally, and you make a difference in the people around us. So I'm very grateful for that. I'm very grateful for you, Rob. You keep on, you keep on fighting the good fight. You're on the side of the angels. And I appreciate our friendship and our collegial uh, relationship as well. It's, it's- and, and more to come. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.